Hello, and welcome to the Harvest Podcast, brought to you by The Field in Charlotte, North Carolina, where we put love into action. We hope that you are blessed by these previous sermons by our pastor, Reverend Dr. Peter M. Weary. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a comment on whichever podcast platform you use. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and YouTube at Mayfield Memorial Missionary Baptist Church, as well as Instagram at The Field CLT. Be blessed. Oh God, what a gorgeous rendition, powerful. Reminder, hear the angel voices. Dr. Wanda Hunter-Wary, one of the great voices in the world today, right here at the field. Weren't you blessed? Weren't you blessed? Bringing us into the spirit of this season, this day after Christmas, as we gather together and worship God, who calls us into the stillness yet brings us with jubilation through the cares of this life. What a mighty God we serve. Thank you, Dr. Wanda Hunter-Wary, reminding us of the purpose, the reason for this season. Would you come with me to the gospel according to Matthew chapter 2, beginning with the 13th verse. I want to read a pretty sizable portion through verse 23 from the Good News Translation. Matthew 2, beginning with verse 13. After they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph and said, Herod will be looking for the child in order to kill him. So get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you to leave. Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and left during the night for Egypt, where he stayed until Herod died. This was done to make come true what the Lord had said through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. When Herod realized that the visitors from the east had tricked him, he was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its neighborhood who were two years old and younger. This was done in accordance with what he had learned from the visitors about the time when the star had appeared. In this way, what the prophet Jeremiah had said came true. A sound is heard in Ramah, the sound of bitter weeping. Rachel is crying for her children She refuses to be comforted before they are dead. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel because those who tried to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and went back to Israel. But when Joseph heard that Archelaus had succeeded his father Herod as king of Judea, he was afraid to go there. He was given more instructions in a dream. So he went to the province of Galilee 
and made his home in a town named Nazareth. And so what the prophets had said came true. He will be called a Nazarene. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me for a little while this morning on the subject from Christmas to crisis? From Christmas to crisis. Let us pray. Consecrate me now to thy service, Lord, by the power of grace divine. Let my soul look up with a steadfast hope. Let my will be lost in thine. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. This story in the gospel according to Matthew always reminds me of times in my own life when I have personally heard from God. Now, hearing from God in the lives of most of us doesn't usually look quite like it did in the narrative about Joseph. In my own experience, I think I've shared this story with some in the field one of the most prominent of many memories of God speaking to me when I was a child is that back in those days, my mom, early days when she was much younger, she died very saved and filled with the Spirit. In those early days, though she was still a very good and spiritual woman, still though had occasions when she went out with the girls. It was Christmas Eve and she'd taken me to the Catholic Church, St. Anne's, where as a child I was a member. For midnight mass, she took me there and while I was there in mass, she and one of my favorite aunts, Aunt Willie Mae, who's with the Lord now as well, she had come to visit from Detroit they were going back home after she dropped me off to get dolled up to go out for a little night on the town while I was at church. Their plan was pick me up, take me back home, and then go out to a local bar just across the street from where St. Anne's Church was on Broadway. And when mom picked me up, I began to get a sense of dread that something terrible was about to happen. I shared it with her. I pleaded with her not to go back out that night, but she laughed it off and assured me that everything was going to be fine. Their good friend, Charles, was the bartender and owner of the little spot they were headed to, so she said there was nothing to worry about. As mom tucked me in, I pleaded with her again, this time explaining that something terrible was about to happen. I didn't know what, but something bad was about to happen. As it turned out, the next morning, I woke up to a lot of urgent questions about just what I saw and just what message I'd received about what I thought was their impending danger. 
puzzled. I, I just explained that I, I didn't see anything specific, but I just had a very real sense of dread, and that in my mind translated into a warning for them that if they went out, something terrible was waiting on them. At that point, Mom shared with me and the other incredulous adults in the kitchen that morning that the two ladies, Mom and Aunt Willie Mae, showed up at the spot late that night, sat down at the bar, and it was said they had an enjoyable evening, and they small-talked with their friend Charles, the bartender, and chit-chatted with one another, and soon the bartender turned away, and as he did, a man came up from behind them with a gun. He pointed it briefly and firmly into both of their backs and warned them not to make a sound or a scene and demanded their purses or he would kill them both after taking them outside. Because nobody else in the bar seemed to notice, and their so-called friend Charles strangely turned away at just the time the robber moved up behind them, they concluded it had been a setup. Needless to say, they gave up their purses, and it turned out their going out on Christmas Eve never happened again. I always understood that event as God speaking to me on behalf of my mom and Aunt Willie Mae. He, he spoke to me, I concluded, because had he spoken to them, they wouldn't have listened. They sure didn't listen to me. I always thought that it sure would have been helpful if God had been more specific and descriptive of the danger. Wouldn't it be great, family, if God spelled everything out for us like he did for Joseph? But in reality, this and other experiences like it, of prophecies and premonitions for me have been rather nonspecific. That, that seems for most of us just the way things go. Really, we live not by premonitions, but we, we live by faith and the accumulation of our wisdom and knowledge along with it that comes from God. Though, though through these attributes, we manage to arrive at the best decisions we can about the circumstances of our lives. Even at that, I, I haven't abandoned my actual experience that God does speak. Thank God God speaks, because now I need God to speak constantly. I've lived long enough to know that God does, in fact, act in the lives of people. God's always up to something, but it doesn't usually come down the way Joseph experienced it, with precise times and geographic instructions. Most of the time, we have to live with the fact that the judgments and decisions we have to make while guided by God are also our own. This narrative seems to demonstrate that the grand birth narrative Matthew paints where Jesus doesn't just show up to poor shepherds like he did in Luke, but here in Matthew, he forces world powers to react to his presence. Matthew demonstrates that that auspicious experience was short-lived. Jesus' 15 minutes of fame seems in this story to be all over. The story of Jesus here goes from theophanies to threats, from magi to murder, from a home though humble in King David's town to a ghetto called Galilee and a hood named Nazareth. 
Within just a few lines, the newborn Messiah seems to be repositioned from association with royalty to God aligning him with riffraff. From the warmth and protection of his fabled birth to endangerment from the hard, cold realities of jealousy, hatred, oppression, and cruelty. An important move seems to be afoot here. This narrative in Matthew is the story of quiet, unpretentious, obedient Joseph grappling with the reality of evil happening right in the presence, right under the eyesight of God. Ultimately, that's the concern, family. That's the issue which haunts us as we tug along life's way on God's coattail for a sign, for a message. Somebody ought to ask, when the bottom fell out of my life and things seemed to be spiraling out of control, where was God then? Where was God when evil rose up in my life? Where was God when chaos broke out and hard choices had to be made? But I didn't hear any voices. Unlike Joseph, I, I didn't see any angels. Where, where was God when I needed direction, when I had tough decisions to make, but I didn't get any exact times or dates? Sometimes I had dreams, but they weren't really clear about where to go and exactly who to watch out for. Where was God then? How can we family discern what God wants and what God directs when lower seems to be the only direction I can travel? In other words, where is God and how can we find out what God wants when the bottom falls out of life? The answers come directly from the text and here is the first one, which is when the bottom falls out of life and you're trying to discern what God wants, can I convince somebody, don't despise detours. Verses 13 and 14 through 15 says this. After they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph and said, Herod will be looking for the child in order to kill him. So get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you to leave. Verse 14, Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and left during the night for Egypt where he stayed until Herod died. Here it is. This was done to make come true what the Lord had said through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. As soon as the Magi left from visiting the holy child, an angel began to disturb Joseph's sleep with a warning and some very specific instructions. The warning was logical. Herod's paranoia and cruelty were well known to his own wife, and children as well as to others in the political world based on what the Magi had told Herod about looking for a newborn king Herod had already concluded that he needed to get rid of any child like this uh, the warning therefore made a lot of sense when the angel explained to Joseph in the dream that Herod wanted to kill the baby even in a dream Joseph would have understood that the problem 
was the escape route. Egypt. Options were somewhat limited. I mean, Samaria, they could have gone through, but the Jews considered that a mongrel place populated by a mongrel race. No good Jew would voluntarily go through Samaria. There was Galilee. That was a conquered land with a flimsy religion. A good Jew would have also thought twice about going there. But, but Egypt? Really? Clearly Egypt was a stopping off place en route to where God finally wanted the Holy Family to settle. No instructions were given about why God would have had them travel right now in the middle of the night to Egypt, but Joseph would find out later down in verse 21 that Egypt was just a detour on the way to somewhere else. Y'all stay with me, I'm going somewhere. As a matter of fact, before the story's over, there will be two more detours en route to the destination God had in mind. Now, detours, family, are different from deterrence. We, we get them confused sometimes because sometimes detours are caused by people, pain, and problems. Uh, so, so we conclude that there is deterrence in the detour or that the detour is deterrence that, that somehow we're being diverted from our intended destination. But, but how many know that God has a way of getting us to where God wants us to be that won't always match up with the directions from Waze or from MapQuest? God's reasoning is not always explained but verse 15 reveals that with God detours always have a purpose. Somebody missed a shout cue. That with God, detours always have a purpose. Matthew quotes the prophet Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. And in doing so, he demonstrates that before you ever ran up into what you're now encountering, God had already drawn up a road map for where he wanted you. In this case, it was to let Israel know that Jesus had come to personify, to embody, to serve as the very symbol of their struggle to be free and that whatever other folk called them, God was calling them too. The detours of life field family are, are designed to let us know that our struggles have symmetry. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end. That you ain't going to struggle always. The detours of life are intended to reveal that detours are the move of God to temper how fast you're running so you don't arrive where God wants you to go out of season. Some of us run so fast without consultation from God. Some of us run to places that God never told us to go. So detours sometimes reroute us to slow us down a little bit so that we understand when God wants us to arrive at the place God is taking us. Detours demonstrate that no matter who or what the enemies of your forward progress might be, enemies are not running things. God holds the map. Can I get somebody to tell the person next to you? The enemies ain't running things. God holds the map. Can I talk to somebody 
who doesn't understand why you are where you are right now, how you got where you are right now, that you feel like you've been detoured away from your destiny. Can I tell you that God is just rerouting you so you get to where God wants you at the time in the season when God wants you there? Because you know that God knows the end before the beginning. God knows what's waiting on you before you even take off. God already understands the implications of your going. So it is that don't despise detours. When you feel detours in your life, lift up your hands and give God praise because it means God is rerouting you. How can we discern what God wants, you might say, and what God directs when the bottom falls out of life? reason we can't really understand detours is because they often come with hardship. They come with struggle. They come with pain. It doesn't mean that God ain't directing you. It just means God is tempering your running, that God is taking you through so he can take you too. Can I get anybody to thank God for a detour? How can you discern what God wants when the bottom falls out? Well, don't despise detours, but the text also gives us instruction not to, don't misunderstand evil. Verse 16 says, when Herod realized that the visitors from the east had tricked him, he was furious. Listen to this. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its neighborhood who were two years old and younger. This was done in accordance with what had been learned from the visitors about the time when the star had appeared. In this way, what the prophet Jeremiah had said came true. A sound heard in Ramah. The sound of bitter weeping. Rachel is crying for her children. She refuses to be comforted for they are dead. I'll be candid and say that one of the greatest theological problems of this text is that it, it requires an astute reader to wrestle with some thorny issues about the justice of God. Uh, one issue is, since Jesus and his family were warned and escaped Herod's bloody massacre, does this mean that God didn't love the other hundreds, possibly thousands of babies who were murdered? It always troubles me, family, when I hear people testifying about how God spared their lives or property when the lives of property of others were destroyed, as if to suggest that God only spared you because you are special. Does this mean that God loves you more than he loves the unfortunate victims? Does this mean God loves your high school graduate more than he loves the children who were killed in Oxford, Michigan several weeks ago? Does this mean that God loves your disabled person, your disabled family member more than he loved the man who was shot nine times by a police officer in a wheelchair? Does this mean God loves you more than he loves the other folk who had COVID? You recovered and they didn't? What kind of God is that? It always troubles me. Another issue is this. What does God allowing this massacre say 
about God as a loving, beneficent, just God. The killing of all those children sure wasn't just. What kind of God allows elementary school babies in Connecticut to be gunned down? Having seen some of the things I've witnessed in my life, I've been forced to grapple with the tough questions of God's justice, of God's fairness. In El Salvador, I, I stood at a place called El Mosote, a little town where every woman was murdered and where every infant and child were thrown up into the air and caught on the ends of bayonets. Is that just? Is that fair? Does God's failure to intervene and stop it suggest he didn't listen when those mothers doubtless prayed out loud for their little babies about to be killed? Does God just not care about poor kids in Chicago being gunned down at the rate of hundreds a year? Does God just not care about people living on the streets in major cities, including Charlotte, no shelter, no bed on cold, rainy nights? Does God just not care about defenseless, frightened women beaten by husbands and boyfriends, driven out into the world with no place to go? What kind of God is this? Does God just not care about poor working citizens when their government abuses them and oppresses them and, 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 and takes away their rights to vote? Where is God in the midst of all this evil? I've realized, family, that people tend to ask these sorts of questions when they misunderstand evil. In Matthew's narrative, the writer doesn't ask nor answer the question as to why the protection and preservation that covered Jesus didn't extend to the other innocent children in the vicinity of Bethlehem. To, to ask why God didn't extend that same protection to the others is to miss the point and, and to somehow somewhat misunderstand evil. It's akin to asking when you weren't protected by the police from the car. Why? Why weren't you protected by the police from the car accident you had last month? Or, or why your savings wasn't protected from the stock market going down? Or why your debt uh, your debit card information wasn't protected from being stolen while you were shopping at Target during the Christmas holiday? To ask those questions is to presuppose that it's God's responsibility to restrain people with a free will from acting out of line with God's will. These questions presuppose that it's God's responsibility to live the lives and make decisions for folk who are determined to do evil. The fact is, evil draws all of us at the root of every human problem is human agency. From global warming to tsunamis to incurable diseases to financial calamity, 
folk have a, have a, had a hand in making bad decisions or either making no decisions. Just look at Washington, D.C., Congress folk, senators refusing to make decisions about vital areas of life to keep people safe and to end the chaos. There's, there is organized people, organized evil in the world, and it's somebody's responsibility but yours to decide for or against it. It's nobody's responsibility but yours to decide for or against it. You can decide when evil is done. Those around you can decide when neglect of the environment takes place. Those people perpetrating male domination in the culture are responsible for every sister who gets beaten and mistreated. Those who are doing the evil in city police departments are the ones responsible for the brutality and the systems that prop them up are responsible for the brutality. Herod decided on his own to exterminate scores of babies because he was insecure about his own power and jealous of anybody whom he thought might threaten that God's character comes through when he meets Herod's plot with prophetic power. That's what Matthew does. He shows us that this prophetic power is operating in the midst of this time of abject, sensate evil. Just like Pharaoh before him, Herod lashed out to exterminate God's deliverer, but he did it in vain. God had already made God's move. God had already seen in the words of the prophet Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 15 that there would be weeping and wailing in Israel over this kind of bloody oppression but God met Herod's plot with a plan. That's some good news about evil. Don't misunderstand it. When the bottom falls out in life, don't get it twisted. It only looks like evil has the last word. Matthew seems to have overheard Paul writing to the Romans when he said, for we know that God is working all things together for the good of them that love him for those who are called according to his purpose. When the bottom falls out of your life before tragedy builds a roadblock, God has already paved a highway on the other side. Before enemies can ensnare your feet, God has already put your footstool on layaway. The next time evil drags you down or misfortune seems to dog your every footstep, just remember that God's goodness moves around the world before evil puts its shoes on. Don't misunderstand evil. Don't despise detours. Don't give evil any credit that evil has the last word. Don't misunderstand evil. Evil is not coming from God, but God has a plan in the midst of evil. How can we discern what God wants and what God directs when the bottom falls out of life? Don't despise detours. Just go on where God takes you and know that it is not bad fortune or it is not bad luck, whatever that is, or it is not some enemy. It is God allowing you to be tempered in your running. Don't misunderstand evil. We give the enemy too much credit. Don't you ever think that evil has the upper hand. No matter how bad it hurts, no matter how bad it looks, God has a plan. Here it is. 
Don't, don't despise detours. Don't misunderstand evil. But, but you can't do either of those unless you follow this one. Matthew teaches, don't discount faith. Watch it. After Herod died, verse 19, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel because those who tried to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and went back to Israel. But when Joseph heard that Archelaus had succeeded his father Herod as king of Judea, he was afraid to go there. He was given more instructions in a dream, so he went to the province of Galilee and made his home in a town called Nazareth. And so what the prophets had said came true. He will be called a Nazarene. You Bible readers may have missed another shout cue. This story for the analyst, the expositor, the exegete of a text is full of potholes. I mean, the summation of the whole matter is no different. Here we are concluding this story of the afterglow of, of Magi worshiping the king only to find that this thing begins to unravel as soon as they leave him. Here we are now at the end of this passage, really Worse off than we were at the beginning in terms of making sense out of the whole chain of events. This is because after Herod dies, Joseph is still wishing for a sleep number bed, having nightmares and visions and dreams. He has another nightmare, and this time, instead of one detour, Joseph encounters two more detours. Next time you start feeling sorry for yourself being detoured, just remember poor Joseph. The angel instructs him to go back to Israel, Judah, where he came from. But, but when he got there, the new king was worse than the other one was. How many know sometimes the trouble that you don't know is worse than the trouble that you know? Here it is. After another dream, he gets instructions to go to this ghetto. If you think following God is a neat, uneventful little journey, think again. After he gets this other dream, he goes to Galilee, a ghetto, a place of depleted resources and watered-down religion that hadn't really recovered since the Assyrians took it over more than 700 years earlier. If that wasn't bad enough, Joseph decides to make his home in a little hood called Nazareth a place so small and insignificant that, that historians and scholars for a long time debated whether it even really existed. The common question in Israel seemed to have been, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was from this place that Matthew relates the Son of God grew up. This is, this is not just an insignificant geographical tidbit, family. This is Matthew's statement of faith that in the midst of tyranny and danger, can I personalize it, that in the midst of our tyranny and danger, that in the midst of our peril and uncertainty, in places of life where the high and the mighty seem to always get stuff going their way, the reign of God 
breaks into those unlikely places. It breaks into juke joints and crack dens and stick-up dives and hospice rooms and prison cells and school suspension rooms and homeless shelters and battered women's homes and halfway houses and mental institutions and cancer wards and soup kitchens and fractured families and rehab facilities and Bed-Stuy and over the Rhine on Beatty's Ford and in Hidden Valley in Cold Spring and Lambert's Point on Rosal's Ferry in your house and in my house into those unlikely places the reign of God breaks in and declares that the dawn of righteousness has come. Can I tell you, don't you ever, don't you ever discount faith because it was because of our faith we can see that the Son of God shows up, in other words, in places where we are suffering and struggling and can't make it and can't figure it out. That's the shout cue of Advent and post-Advent this Christmas tide season that we are blessed because wherever we're struggling and going through, the Son of God, the Son of Righteousness steps in and shines the light in places where uh, evil folk have done injustice to the poor and to you and to people of color and to the vulnerable and to the pushed out. This is a faith move God makes by positioning his son not in the pinnacle of power in Jerusalem or in Rome, but God positions a salvation. God positions deliverance in the midst of the dark rooms of drudgery and the margins of the culture. Somebody ought to be giving God praise that, that God has in your season of discontent positioned the very Son of God in your sick room, in your bedroom, where you're struggling, where you are run amok. God has positioned Jesus right there and made him Lord and Christ. Oh, that's why we let the angels sing. That's why we celebrate the angelic chorus because God deserves worship for not making us the outsiders, but condescending, Mary said, to those of low estate. God has positioned salvific power in the midst of his people who need a deliverer. God has positioned a savior right on the assembly line where you're working. God has positioned a deliverer right in the tight conditions that you're living in. God has positioned a savior right there in the midst of your pain. God has positioned a savior right there where you're wiping tears. God has positioned a savior right there where it looks hopeless, where the end seems near. Somebody ought to give God glory that God does not save salvation for those who don't need a doctor. The ones who don't need a doctor, they are the ones who don't need a doctor. But God positions salvation where folk are sick and suffering. That is the good news. That is the good news. Don't despise detours. God is getting you somewhere. Don't misunderstand evil. Evil is not in charge. The enemy ain't running nothing. And don't by any means discount faith. For by faith, everything you're going through will be 
corrected by faith. That's why we've come here today to lift up this word by faith, knowing that the advent has come. The deliverer has come. Oh, why don't you just in your spirit, in your heart right now, why don't you start thanking God? Oh, it's an act of faith, y'all. It ain't right yet. It looks like it ain't never gonna be right. I know that's bad grammar, but it's good gospel. But God has positioned a Savior right there where you're suffering. He's there. Been there all the time. I'm so grateful in the places where I've had to shudder at watching the evil of this world staring it right in the face I've been able to say thank you Jesus I dare you to say it I dare you to say it I dare you to put that in your mouth as you walk through the fires of your current predicament I dare you I dare you to rejoice about him while it looks like you're losing everywhere else. I dare you to lift your hands and worship him while you're grieving over something that has gone wrong in your family, in your life, on your job, in your career, in your community. He is the deliverer. Funny thing about the deliverer here is that he came in the form of a helpless infant. You do know God can use anybody, anything. He came to look like us and feel like us, suffer, struggle like us so that we would have a savior who was not unfamiliar with the stuff we go through. His power is that he defeated all of it, wrapped in the same skin that we're in. So he's worthy of praise today. When your life moves from Christmas to crisis, just remember, the detours and the evil are not there to harm you. Though they may do harm, God's got them both. Just have faith. Can I get you to do that today? Just believe. Romans 10 and 9 says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Redirected. Rerouted. Thank you, Jesus.
This is bigger than what you see. just a moment we're going to invite you to accept this Jesus into your own life. Come on. Would you pray with me? Repeat this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, Come into my life. Forgive me for the wrongs I've done. My sin. I need you as my Savior. I am powerless to save myself. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Come on. Let's rejoice that it's done. That's when things start happening. Right now. And I stop looking at that then. I let go and I let God. Let God have his way. Things are happening right now. That's when things start all over the world, they're happening right now. I stop looking at that. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad? The crisis can't win. The evil can't win. The depression can't win. Hallelujah. The obstacles, the barriers can't win. The darkness can't win. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, let's be dismissed from this holy place. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. And all of God's people said, Amen. Go in peace.
Pray that the message has uplifted, encouraged, and challenged you as you continue your walk with God. If you're looking for a church home, the great news is the field is not confined by the four walls of the church, for we all know that the people are the church. If you wish to become a partner in ministry, but more importantly, a member of God's family, simply reach out to us on Facebook, at Mayfield Memorial Missionary Baptist Church or on Instagram at the Field CLT. Thank you once again and be blessed.